our morning speaker is uh, become our traditional leadoff hitter, and that is uh, appropriate because he used to play professional baseball. Craig Smith is pastor of the Vale Church here on Route 6, which is about down as you just leave, exit the resort on, at the rotary there. You go right, and it's just about a mile down on the left. It's a fabulous church. I've been worshiping there when I'm up here for about 20 years, and uh, I just love it. And Craig, how long have you been here? 11 years now. Wow. I knew it was close to a decade. 11 years. Anyway, he's a great Bible teacher, a great guy. He, he has a gorgeous wife, as professional athletes tend to do. And uh, they have three beautiful children, Addison, daughter, and then uh, Preston and... Kendall and Preston. I knew there was. I knew I was missing one. All right, but without further ado, Craig Smith. Thank you, Kent. Clearly, you're a good friend. That's why those words were so gracious, <laughs> kind. Um, and this is such an honor. It's always such a great thing to be back at High Ground. Uh, one because you get to see friends, uh, old friends like Kent and others, and then you get to meet new friends, as many of you will do, which is great. And uh, anyhow, I remember my very first high ground conference. I met Mr. Charlie Duke. Uh, As you might know, lunar module pilot, Apollo 16, 10th human being to walk on the moon. And I just got to admit, I was totally starstruck. I was just man crush. I'm like, Charlie. So that first dinner, I'm like, I need to sit next to Charlie. And just, and I did, you were kind enough to let me sit next to you. And I'm like, how cool is it? I mean, you, dude blasted off in a rocket, 10,000 miles an hour, lands on the moon, drives a spanky four-wheeler around. Who did? That's so cool. So I'm like, how cool is that? And Charlie just quickly and quietly says, no, how amazing the one who made the moon. And I was like, oh, shut up. Thanks. Fair point. Like, you know, Charlie's right. Jesus Christ is the creator of all that exists, the owner of all that exists, the sustainer of all that exists, right? And we have gathered from near and far to consider him, to hear from him, to think about him, to perhaps be confronted by him, if that's what we need to do, to follow his lead, give him our hearts and our lives, because the most important question in life, as you might know, men, is the one Jesus posed to his disciples that good day, and he said, who is it that you say that I am? That is one of life's greatest questions. And people all over the world offer all kinds of answers, especially here in the Vale Valley. They get quite colorful, actually, if you are familiar with the Vale Valley. If you ask skeptics in the valley, who is Jesus? They'll tell you he was a good moral teacher. If you ask the politicians in the valley, they'll say Jesus was a political revolutionary who was executed by the Roman government for his political ideas, his radical ideas. If you ask the New Agers in the valley, Jesus was in tune with the energy of the universe. He spoke words of love and peace. If you ask the hippies in the valley, of which there are many, they'll say Jesus was a gentle soul. He had lavender pants and he wore a purple tunic with a feather in his ear and he drank organic tea while he ran a medical marijuana dispensary in Nazareth, right? So (laughs) a lot of different opinion as to who Jesus Christ is. But for the Christian, we maintain, we affirm, we believe that Jesus Christ is God. He's the Lord of lords. He is the king of all kings. And as such, he has the rightful place of authority to rule and reign over our lives. At least that's what we say. But does he? Therein lies part of the rub, I think, for us, because culture and the world and its ways are very powerful influences in our lives. And they collide with God's ways, God's values for our life. And every day, the battlefield is my life in your life. A few years back, I preached a sermon series at my church called Death to Selfie. It was a lot of fun. 
I kind of hacked off all the teens in my church, including two of my own daughters, which was great, because we just made the whole selfie movement kind of a big punching bag, right? In fact, you've got a handout, if you want, on your table that kind of walks you through what I'm going to cover if you're a linear thinking, engineering, type A person who needs notes. If not, then just listen up. But anyhow, the selfie kind of sums up the world's values and ways. It's about self-image, self-promoting, right? Self-confidence. It's all wrapped up in power and pleasure and wealth and prestige and status. The life verse for the selfie lover is 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. You've got it on your handout. Paul said, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. So there's plenty of love, but it's just all aimed at the wrong place. And this is what the selfie movement promotes and celebrates. That's why somebody invented the selfie stick, which is also known as the narcissist stick, right? Or the wand of narcissists. Which, by the way, the selfie stick was listed in Time Magazine's 25 Best Inventions in 2014. Really? A stick that holds your iPhone is among the most brilliant inventions our great minds could come up with in 2014. And so we might ask ourselves a question this morning. Would Jesus have taken a selfie? He's walking on water. Posted on Facebook. Hey, beat this, right? Like, would he have done that? No, but this cultural force has made its way into our lives and the lives of too many Christians, and there are too many Christians walking the halls of our churches, mine included, whose lives look a lot more cultural than they do biblical. And so there are several in my church who still, they're all party, they're no purpose. The first five days after the weekend are always the hardest for them. <laughs> we'll let that sink in for just a moment for you guys. And it's because as a Christ follower, at some point they've convinced themselves that it's okay to have one foot in the Jesus bucket and one foot in the cultural bucket. It's what I call selfie So think of it like a spiritual smoothie. You throw in a splash of Jesus, a splash of the selfie world, you've got this new movement called selfie and it's kind of a massive problem for the American Christ follower in the 21st century. Because over time, our lives just gradually look more and more cultural, less and less biblical, and we might not even feel like there's anything wrong with that. And so here's the, here's the point on the handout. The danger with selfie may not be that I'm ruining my life, but rather that I'm just wasting it. I think that might be one of the biggest dangers facing the 21st century Christian male who's allowed the world's convictions to influence his Christian convictions, and by allowing that to happen, we just waste our lives day in and day out on things that really have very little eternal significance. And when we do that, we allow our heart to begin to grow dim and dull, and we find ourselves apathetic and indifferent toward the Lord and his ways. You might recall in the book of Revelation, last book in our Bible, Jesus confronts seven churches. You're familiar with that. One being the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. And so Jesus had some strong words for that church. Here's what he said, verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing, but you do not realize, there's the key right there, you do not realize, Jesus said, that you are wretched and pitiful and poor, blind and naked. A little context behind the strong words of Jesus to that church in Laodicea. If you're familiar with it, Laodicea was the chief city in the Lycus Valley, strategically located where three highways intersected and converged, so it was a highly commercial city, a highly wealthy city, 
And many of the millionaires of the day built theaters, big stadium, lavish public baths, fabulous shopping centers, right? Houses were quite large for their day. There were many of them. Sounds like the Vale Valley, but in a little different context. Anyhow, the city of Laodicea had one significant problem, their water supply. Laodicea received water through an aqueduct coming from a spring four miles away. That spring water would emerge cold, but by the time it traveled to Laodicea, it was warm. Meanwhile, there was a neighboring town called Iropolis that was famous because of their hot springs. Again, hot spring water could be brought into Laodicea, but by the time it makes it to the city, it's no longer hot. So you have an extremely wealthy city that has everything it wants except the availability of cold water and hot water. And there's a church there. And the gospel has made its way to Laodicea and a church is established, but in this city, educated, independent, consumer, pleasure-driven city, that cultural influence made its way into the hearts and the minds and the lives of the church. Selfianity arose in the church among God's people and it left them what? Lukewarm. Unlike other churches Jesus addresses in Revelation, he gives this church no commendation whatsoever, no encouragement. He just said, you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The Laodiceans knew very well about the issue of being lukewarm. Water that's never cold and refreshing, or water that's never hot and useful. So how many of you are coffee drinkers or you're tea drinkers? Yeah, I would say it's a lot of us. How many of you just love a great, lukewarm cup of coffee? You're like, that's just fantastic. Like, can I go ahead and make that thing? Or how many of you love lukewarm dinner plate? Like, lukewarm meatloaf, lukewarm veggies, glass of lukewarm milk to wash? Nobody does. Makes you want to what? Spit it out. Because there's no value in being lukewarm. And the Lord makes it very clear that this kind of church does not please him whatsoever. It's a church that has allowed selfianity to kind of take over the lives of the people. So there's no passion, there's no enthusiasm, there's no devotion, there's no excitement, there's no mission, there's no commitment. Spiritually lukewarm. And you note in the passage how those Christians viewed themselves in that moment before Jesus confronts them. They thought they were just fine, didn't they? He said, we're rich, we've acquired wealth, we have no needs, to which Jesus said, you have no clue as to the true condition. Your wallets are full, but your hearts are empty. Your bank account is loaded, but your spiritual life is bankrupt. And friends, this is what happens when Christians allow culture to shape our lives and not our Bible. It's a lukewarm faith, and here's where that leads. A lukewarm heart leaves me, first of all, spiritually uninformed. So little knowledge, little understanding, little formation, little spiritual maturity. The author of the book of Hebrews addressed this very issue with a a scattered group of Christians. He spends four chapters, as you might know in the book, just explaining to the Christians the amazing truths about the superiority of Jesus Christ over all things. And then he comes to chapter 5, verse 11, and he says this. We have much to say about this, that's Jesus, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. So the author said these Christians are, quote, slow to learn. The idea there is not that they had a learning disability. They had a lukewarm heart. He was saying you're lazy, you're apathetic, you're indifferent, you won't try, you don't really care. You place your spiritual growth at the bottom of the priority list. And then he goes on, he says, you should be teaching others. You should be in the contribution line, but you still remain over in the distribution line receiving handouts. 
You see, like us, these Christians had everything they needed to train and grow in godliness and maturity in Christ. It's not like God had come to them and say, hey, I'm, I'm enacting a large spiritual educational budget cut and you have no resources. No, they had the word of God, the spirit of God, the people of God, just like we do, but the problem was they have an apathetic heart. They remain spiritual infants, not adults. The author said they need milk, not solid food. It's what we kind of affectionately refer to as sippy cup Christians, right? They're sippy cup Christians. They're still, they're still on the, the, the easy sauce. And men, just so you know, that's not really the goal we're going for, right? Lukewarm, uninformed, one foot in culture, one foot in the church, but we're not really going anywhere. We're not really growing anywhere. It's like, yeah, we've mastered Pilates, but not prayer, right? We got the selfie down, but not our Bible, and that's not what we're after. And when that occurs, it leads to a second unfortunate outcome. A lukewarm heart leaves me also spiritually unusable. I'm of no, very little use now. I'm not going to make a great kingdom impact. I'm spiritually sidelined. Maybe I'm on the injured reserve, right? Because I'm not available. I'm not useful in the hands of God. This is what Paul was getting at. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 20 and 21, he likened our lives, our choices, our our spiritual uh, health and character to the metaphor of a house. And he said, in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, some for ignoble. And if a man cleanses himself of the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master. There's the goal and prepared to do any good work. That's a great word picture for you and I. Paul points us to a house, and we can all relate because we all live in one. And in every home, we know there are articles that are, that are uh, valuable. There are articles and utensils and furniture or things that are not so valuable. And it's funny because in your home, we have a ton of useless items, but there's always one family member who thinks you need it, right? That's why it's still there. It's like, honey, I think it's okay to get rid of the A-tracks. I think we can do that. You know, no, 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 those are collector items. That's Simon and Garfunkel live in New York right there. You can't, like we always just keep useless stuff. On the other hand, your home has some very valuable, useful items like blankets or a shower or fine dinnerware, things that are valuable and helpful to those who live in the house. Well, Paul's saying the same thing is true when it comes to our Christian life. There can be things in our life that prevent us from being useful to God. But Paul said, if you cleanse yourself from the useless stuff, we become an instrument for noble purposes. We're ready, we're prepared for any good work, and God is ready to wear us out in all the right ways. But that assumes that we've got to purge. We've, we've got to spring clean the useless parts. The gold and silver items, we want to keep those in our life. But the old paper plates, the old paint buckets, in my garage right now, I have about 15 cans of paint buckets from a house I lived at in Memphis, Tennessee. Why? I don't know, just brought them on the move and there they are sitting in my garage, useless. A lukewarm heart will be satisfied with a low-grade spiritual life, but that just leaves you and I spiritually uninformed, spiritually unusable. And that's a waste of a Christian life. We get one shot to do this thing called life. And just to make sure we're all kind of clear of the gravity of a lukewarm faith, here's a little side note there, to do nothing is to do something. Because when you think about it, the temptation when you're spiritually lukewarm is what? Do nothing. That's the battle cry of apathy. Don't do anything, but just hope things get better, right? And yet when it comes to our spiritual lives, doing nothing is actually causing active movement, but in the wrong direction. 
Listen to the caution in Hebrews 2.1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. Why? So that we do not drift away. To do nothing per that verse is to drift. As the hymn, Come Thou Fount, states, right? We are prone to wander. We're spiritual drifters if we're indifferent, and that's the danger of failing to take action when lukewarmness begins to set in. The antidote per the verse is what? Pay careful attention. Meaning you've got to have a plan for your spiritual life. There has to be some intentionality, some forethought to our walk with God. The Proverbs teaches you and I that it's foolish to have no plan and just wander through life, wasting time and energy. And it's an exhausting way to live. But some people approach their spiritual lives this way. No forethought, no careful thinking, no plan. And you ask them, where are you going spiritually with the Lord? I I don't know. Well, how are you going to get there? I'm not sure. Well, how's that going for you? I'm exhausted. Yeah. Plans keep us organized and focused. How many of you know people who spend hours each week looking for their car keys or their cell phone? Anybody in your house, just my house? Right, every week, same problem. Where are my keys? Where's my phone? Rather than just recognizing that God in his wisdom made these things called baskets, and you can put them in there, right? Like every day, you can put those things in there. So we need to pay careful attention to our spiritual lives. Selfianity is designed to keep you lukewarm, uninformed, unusable, and the Lord's not impressed because he knows that we're wasting the one good life that he gave us. That's why we need to heed the wisdom of Psalm 90, verse 12. You know this. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The psalmist is saying wise people consider their days. They plan accordingly. The past is gone. We can't retrieve it. We can't relive it. If our past was painted with a lukewarm faith, there's no point in stewing over it, right? It's gone. Tomorrow is unknown, so let God's grace and mercy in Christ cover your past. Let God's love and care cover your future. And what's left in between? This day this good day to spend each day wisely and that means that if we need to make some changes with the Lord today's the day to make the change not tomorrow so I think for some of us maybe it's it's a weekend away to kind of do a little soul searching with God and asking yourself this reflection question what's going to be the defining image of my life Meaning, what defining picture will my life display that reveals to the world that which I love, I value, and I live for? If you turn to the world of selfies, of which I'm knee-deep with two teenage daughters, you see the defining image of the world, don't you? They live for pleasure, fame, physical beauty, adventure, adrenaline, fortune, possession. That's the image they pursue. But for the Christ follower, we have a much higher calling. We're called to live for, look like, Jesus. I think the Apostle Paul captured the essence of that idea best. By way of his own life, his own passion, here's the image Paul wanted you and I to know him by. Philippians 3, 7-9, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, scubala in the Greek, manure, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. That was the defining image of a good man. One thing, Jesus. Everything else, rubbish. All the other images of worldly knowledge, success, wealth, status, power. Paul says, nope, rubbish. That beautiful British word, I like it, rubbish. It's not useful. 
And if you and I are like the Apostle Paul, we wake up one day and we realize all the things we thought would make life full and fulfilling never really delivered. Greatness is not defined by how many likes my daughter's selfie has on Instagram. Greatness is defined by the reality that the God of the universe loves me because I am in Christ and I want to know him. And Jesus becomes the true treasure because he brings joy and meaning and life and fulfillment. Paul said, my defining image is this. I want to know Jesus more and more and more each day. That was the single defining image of his life. To know his Lord, to serve his Lord, to grow more like his Lord, and to reflect his image to the world. You know, when Michelangelo was asked how he created that magnificent statue, David... If you've seen that great statue, he explained this. He said, I saw David in the marble slab, and I began the process of cutting away everything that wasn't David. Isn't that fascinating? I would show you a picture of the sculpture, but it's rated R. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? Michelangelo cut away everything that wasn't the image of David. Maybe the same call goes forth to us as men in Christ. Cut away that which is not a reflection of Jesus in my life. Cut away the things that keep me lukewarm. Cut at the selfie out of my Christianity such that all that remains is the image of Jesus. If you go back to the Revelation passage where Jesus rebuked the Laodicean church, you find out his heart behind the confrontation. It wasn't because Jesus hated the church that he rebuked them. It was because he loved them. Listen to how he wraps up his words to the church in verse 19, Revelation 3. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Men, God disciplines those he loves when he knows that those he loves are wasting their lives. So it was in love that Jesus confronted a lukewarm church and he called them to repentance, turn around, make a change, stop wasting your life. And it's interesting because there are many ministries and people who use that passage right there as an evangelistic appeal to the non-Christian. And that's okay, that's a fine idea, but that's not the context of Revelation 3, 19 and 20. Jesus is calling out to a church that locked him out. They locked Jesus out. They closed the door. Why? So they could remain lukewarm in their faith with a foot in culture and maybe a toe in Jesus. So he gives you this image of Jesus outside banging on the door of his church, the church that bears his name. There's a sign. The Laodicean church had a sign. Laodicean church of Jesus Christ. But they locked the founder out. That's the picture. And so just imagine Jesus banging on the door. They open the people. Who is it? Oh, it's God. Well, what's he want? Well, he probably wants to come in so we'd stop wasting our lives. Listen, Jesus loves his people way too much to leave them in apathy and indifference. Isn't that a good thing? No question. He laid down his life on a cross in our place to free us from sin and judgment that we might have eternal life to come, but the abundant life today? And the abundant life is one where my heart burns bright hot for God. And our lives should reflect that passion and that fervor to know him and to follow him. So the question on the table this morning for me and for you is this. Is Jesus truly welcome in? In my heart, in my home, in my marriage, in my workplace, in my relationships, in my friendships, in my habits, in my values, in my goals, in my passions? Because some Christians are like, he's welcome here and here and there, but don't touch that. He can't get in there. 
not that part of my life. You know, you have the great gift of spending time up here away from the demands of life and work. And it's a great time to work on cutting away the selfiness of the world out of our lives so that the image of Jesus comes into greater focus and clarity. So what do you need to cut away? Or more challenging, am I locking Jesus out of certain parts of my life? Because here's what I love about our Lord. He's persistent and he'll keep knocking until we get it because he loves us too much to leave us in apathy. It needs to change today. I'll close with this. I think one of the most dangerous words in the English language is the word someday. A lot of people suffer from Sunday, someday syndrome. Someday I'll make my spiritual life a priority. Someday I'll give more to my family. Someday I'll work harder at my marriage. Someday I'll go serve in ministry. Someday I'll use the gifts that God has given me to make a kingdom impact in my church. And the problem with someday is that we miss out on doing something on this day. And then one day, we stand on that day to give an account for how we wasted this day. The gift of a warning from Scripture is that we can make change on this day so that on that good day, when we stand before our God, we do hear the words we long for, men. Well done, good and faithful servant. May it be a tremendous conference for each of you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the great gift of this day. This is the day that you have made. And we honor you and worship and love by making it count. And this message is for me as much as anybody else. It is so easy to allow our lives to drift subtly into culture, to embrace culture's values and ideals and And Father, our lives end up just looking a lot more like that than than your son. And I know that I've gone through plenty of seasons of drifting and wandering. And so I thank you that in your good providence, you have handpicked every single man to be at this conference right now. For all that's going to be shared, all that's going to take place, and the goal is that we come down off the mountain, perhaps with our lives a little more clarified around the image and person of Jesus Christ. And so over the course of the next few days, might we be just be brutally honest with you in our quiet moments alone with you about those areas in our life where perhaps we've locked you out. And maybe it's time to open the door and to welcome you into that hurt, that habit, that hang-up, that relationship, that challenge, whatever it is, because your promise was that you would come into that and fellowship and commune with us and heal and restore and reconcile that area of our life. So, Father, might you motivate all of us by the power of your Spirit to make this one life we get count. Not just serving you, but as Paul said, we want to know you. So draw us into a deeper relationship in the next remaining hours, days, knowing that we'll go back to our respective cities and ministries and businesses transformed. We pray it in the good name of your beloved son, Jesus. And everybody said? Amen. 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 Thanks, men.